Recorded at Work It, WNYC Studios Festival for Women Podcasters. The pop-up studio was created in partnership with Cole Hahn, a fashion brand committed to extraordinary women telling extraordinary stories. Como 10 minutos, nada más que eso, y de ahí viene el, el sendero nuevamente de unos 3, 4 metros de ancho. Welcome to another episode of Strangers Abroad. This podcast is a series of conversations with the wonderful and weird people I met while backpacking throughout Latin America. These are the hitchhikers, the couch surfers, the expats, the thrill seekers, the mountain climbers, the volunteers, and society quitters. The people who, for one reason or another, made the decision to challenge themselves, to leave behind the comforts of home, venture out into the world to see what happens. Here we go. On the morning of my father's 58th birthday, I woke up at four in the morning in the middle of the Andes next to an Austrian boy I had met 16 hours ago. Thomas and I found each other on the same journey within the first few moments of my trek to Machu Picchu. At seven in the morning, we were the first ones on a bus from Cusco to Hydroelectric the drop-off point to the alleged lost city of the Incas. He was young and attentive, and as we waited for others to load onto the bus, he told me about his ventures throughout Argentina, Bolivia, and Chile. I loved meeting people who had taken the opposite journey from me. My travels began in the north. I started in Mexico, and then backpacked and bussed my way throughout Central America to Colombia and ending in Peru. And in two weeks time, I would be returning home. My head laid awkwardly on the plastic headrest while Thomas's stories of the Igazu Falls, Dulce de Leche, and Fuchsia Flamingos sprinkled throughout the salt flats danced in my head. Why was I leaving? There was still too much to explore. While his stories kept me occupied from the rough journey ahead, it awakened a sadness and sense of doubt about returning home. For the next six hours, we kept each other company while enduring a whiplash of a ride through the Andes, a road that demonstrates how the earth can so quickly contradict itself, constantly switching between elevation and landscape. At some points, you are at the apex of a snowy cliff then 30 minutes later, you could be in lush foliage, crossing under a waterfall. I got used to the rhythmic clicking of Thomas's camera, capturing as much of the moment as he could. I just sat there and observed. Now, there are a few ways to trek to Machu Picchu, depending on how much money you have versus how much you want to rough it. The cushier way is to take a train right from Cusco directly to Aguas Calientes, which is a small town at the base of Machu Picchu, where explorers stay overnight. This is the painless but pricey path. Alternatively, you can sit on a cramped bus that weaves throughout the Andes for six hours, like I did, and try to ignore the lack of rail guards on the road that protect you from the mountain's steep edges. The bus drops you off at hydroelectric power plant, Nothing like a little nuclear energy to send you on your spiritual journey, which is where the train from Cusco also arrives. Once you're at Hydroelectric, you are still a ways from Aguas Calientes and have one choice. You could take the train 
Or you could walk the tracks at the feet of one of the world's largest and longest mountain ranges. Andes trace the spine of South America for 4,500 miles, beginning in Colombia and ending in Argentina. The mountain range is rich in contradictions and contains within it some of the hottest and coldest biomes. The range is dotted with peaks and valleys weaving between each other like the graft curve of sine and cosine. The highs and lowlands pass through the equator and stretch out towards the South Pole, accidentally blending together dissimilar biomes like the spirited colors of an artist's palette. Accidentally blending dissimilar biomes like the spirited colors of an artist's palette. Rainforests, salt flats, dry, wet, and snow-covered regions host an eclectic group of flora and fauna that call this stretch their home. Pink flamingos, avocado trees, black and white speckled bears, coca plants, monstrous contours, and every type of potato imaginable. If you choose to trek along the train tracks, you'd be walking amongst giants, which is exactly what Thomas and I did. Once we scrambled off the bus and filled our water bottles, we began our pilgrimage and felt that the two and a half hour walk would be great for stretching our cramped legs. The six hour bus ride had fast forwarded our relationship and he was someone I felt comfortable walking quietly with. And I didn't need to fill the silence with patches of history that had happened before we had met each other. We allowed ourselves to meditate amongst the wild pyramids that were sculpted from tectonic shifts, water, and wind. Our paces changed and switched back and forth between other trekkers from farther reaching nations. We made conversation with Israelis, Spaniards, Australians, and Japanese. So many contrasting cultures and histories, peacefully walking along the same path with the same goal in mind. But after two and a half hours, I was relieved once we got to Aguas and wanted nothing more than a place to stretch my sore back and shoulders. We walked around and looked at different hostel places that had rooms which would shove 10 to 12 people in a space and eventually stumbled upon a cheap hotel that offered a private room, but with only one full bed to house us for the night. Our relationship had clearly been established as platonic, and neither of us blinked at the idea of having to share a bed with a stranger. Now, in hindsight, <laughs> there are plenty of times when I realize that the situation could have turned out vastly different, and I forget the vulnerabilities of being a solo female traveler. But after five months of compromising small spaces with lots of people, the idea of putting down my shampoo and face wash in a private, consistent space felt like the greatest luxury. After settling in, the sun had already fallen and we decided to explore the tiny town that housed the gateway to Machu Picchu. Aguas is lodged between stone cliffs and two rivers at the base of a gorge and surrounded by a cloud forest. The town is built upon uneven ground and through it runs a train track that brings supplies and tourists, the lifeblood of the town. So the elevations and rivers are connected by a series of small bridges that crisscross each other at different heights, sloping up and down, which gives the town a depth like an interactive pinball machine. It'll spit you out and bounce around from one corner to the next and is filled with secret exits and entrances. 
it's fortunately not long enough for one to get truly lost in. So we strolled around the town like little pinballs, not knowing what we would bounce into and send us in a different direction. As we walked through this transient Gordian knot, we grabbed snacks and supplies for our next day's journey as our anticipation grew. Machu Picchu is a mountainous citadel hidden deep in the Andes. A citadel is a little city with a fortified area situated at its core. Anthropologists believe it was originally a place where the ruler of the Incas would take vacations, but was quickly repurposed once the conquistadors arrived. It's rumored that Machu Picchu became a hideout for the Incas, away from the bearded men on horses who arrived from the sea, because the Spanish left no written record of Machu Picchu. There had always been this omnipresent myth of the lost city of the Incas, but the Spanish never got there. And it's actually still not considered the lost city of the Incas. There is another place, which I can not pronounce, which is even deeper in the jungle, that is still difficult to get to in 2017. The Inca's ability to live in such hidden places is evidence of human endurance and adaptability. Machu Picchu slowly deflated in population after being exposed to Western diseases and the conquistadors plundering their land and people. However, the jungle continued to protect this sacred space from outsiders, as it remained isolated from the rest of the world for hundreds of years, tended only by a few remaining families and llamas. It was discovered by the Western world almost 100 years ago. In 1911, the American historian and explorer, Hyred Bingram, looking for the old Incan capital, and was shown Machu Picchu by a local farmer. Bingham brought Machu Picchu to international attention and organized another expedition in 1912 to undertake major clearing and excavation. It has since been overtaken by tourists, trekkers, and explorers from every corner of the planet. So there are two ways to get to the base of Machu Picchu, by bus or by foot. I wanted to hike it, as did Thomas. So we decided to wake up at four in the morning to get there for the 5.30 sunrise. After a platonic night of rest, our alarms go off and like soldiers, we quickly dress, grab our bags and march out the doors with determination. I was a little nervous because I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Thomas and I quickly parted because I had to turn back for something. We would meet at the top of Machu Picchu, which is closed at noon. Once I returned back to the entrance point, I began hiking what felt like the y-axis of a right triangle, and I could feel the past two months of all the chocolate, potatoes, and steak working against me. But I was motivated and meditated on the fact that it was my father's birthday. I know he may never get the chance to go to Machu Picchu, and if he did, he couldn't hike it the way that I was. I was young, and I could break my body a little bit and I wanted to take full advantage of the opportunity I had to be there that my parents weren't so fortunate to have. So I hiked it for him. With each step, the tops of the mountains began to expose themselves, haloed with the gleaming of the new rising sun. It was 5.30 by the time I arrived at the base of Machu Picchu. I sat for a minute to collect my breath and watch the rested passengers get off the buses. I walked around the city for a little bit, 
made eye contact with an alpaca, and decided to keep hiking before the other mountain closed off for the day, another hour and a half hike directly up. Once I arrived at the top, I ignored the loud Canadians and Americans taking shots of Pisco at 9 a.m., and I found myself alleged to sit on and just stare out into the sky, the mountains and the world below me. I turned away from them and blocked out the sounds of the world, and I sat in awe of what was before me. I was at eye level with the apexes of the Andes, some of the most paramount accomplishes that our Earth has to offer, and became hypnotized watching a distant bird playfully swoop in and around the Azure Mountains, magnifying their magnitude like a plastic bag caught in the wind. This was the closest I had ever been to the sun without flying. While I sat in solitude upon that mountaintop, With the world below my feet, the feeling of loneliness evaporated. It was a moment of pure acceptance of my position in this larger collective consciousness. I am a word in a larger story, a neuron in a mind, a speck of dust on a clover that shouts out, we are here, we are here, we are here. An energy that ebbs and flows with no particular direction. And there's nothing to do but go along for the ride. I was so overcome with everything I had done in these past five months, traveling alone, being humbled by the world over and over again, and chiseling away at the slab of stone of who I was and wanted to be. I was fully present and knew that the only thing I had was this moment. And I cried. More accurately, I wept. I am frequently overwhelmed with my own existence, and when the daily dynamics of the mind have subsided and I am present, everything becomes illuminated. It's when, for a flash of a moment, my brain tries to fathom how expansive this universe is and zooms out to observe the world, then zooms out to our solar system, and then zooms out to our galaxy, then zooms out to our universe, and I feel tiny and insignificant, but peaceful and know that I am part of a larger, complicated system that is so unfathomable to my species. These moments are what I call emotional orgasms. Because when I'm in the presence of something that is so beyond me and I'm humbled by it, I just cry. (laughs) The universe is in no position to explain itself to you and the silence of the mountains was deafening. Okay. Recorded at Work It, WNYC Studios Festival for Women Podcasters. The pop-up studio was created in partnership with Cole Han, a fashion brand committed to extraordinary women telling extraordinary stories.